The Electronic Intifada. Intifada Electronic. Intifada Electronic. This is the Electronic Intifada Podcast. In Oakland, I'm Nora Barrows Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada Podcast. Since October 1st, Israeli occupation forces have killed at least 10 Palestinian children across the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. According to Defense for Children International Palestine, or DCIP, more than 100 Palestinian children have sustained injuries since the start of October, based on their initial data. DCIP also states that, quote, in response to escalating violence, Israeli forces appear to be implementing a shoot-to-kill policy, which in some incidents may amount to extrajudicial killings. Israeli officials have also allowed military and police forces to fire live ammunition during protests in Jerusalem. DCIP states, quote, the move comes as Israeli ministers approved harsher sentencing guidelines and fines for stone throwers. In one of the latest examples of this shoot-to-kill policy, the Electronic Intifada reported on Wednesday that two children shot dead by Israeli soldiers in the occupied West Bank city of Hebron on Tuesday night had been asking a soldier for help, a Palestinian human rights group says. Israel claimed that 15-year-old Bashar Jamil al-Jabari and his 17-year-old cousin Hussam Ismail Jamil al-Jabari had tried to stab soldiers at a checkpoint in the city. But according to an investigation by the Palestinian Center for Human Rights, the two boys had been observing a protest by Israeli settlers near the city's Ibrahimi Mosque and were on their way home when Israeli soldiers fortified in a military watchtower in the area opened fire at the children and killed them immediately. On Thursday, I sat down with Brad Parker, attorney and international advocacy officer at Defense for Children International Palestine. I began by asking him to introduce himself and his work. I'm Brad Parker. I work with Defense for Children International Palestine. Um, We are a child rights organization, a local Palestinian human rights organization focused on children's rights and protecting and promoting the rights of Palestinian children in the occupied Palestinian territory. Um, We have staff in East Jerusalem, West Bank, and Gaza and document the full range of violations uh, related to the occupation but also related to Palestinian uh, actors as well. Um, let's begin with the current situation as it is right now. School children, uh, for example, especially in East Jerusalem, are being harassed, forced to go through checkpoints and new roadblocks that are put all over that portion of the city. Uh, the Wadi Helwe Information Center just released a video in which young students are saying that they're being stopped, searched, are made late to school, resulting in many of them not wanting to go to school in the first place. And of course, this is on top of the constant fear of attacks by settlers and soldiers. And uh, after 10 children at least have been killed since uh, the 1st of October, uh, more than 100 injured and and, uh, I believe uh, at least 133 detained since then as well. So give us an overview of what's happening, um, especially to Palestinian children right now. So amid the escalating violence we've seen, we've confirmed that 10 Palestinian children have been killed uh, since the beginning of October. Um, at least 106 have sustained injuries um, in, in the escalating violence and clashes. Um, of the 10 killed, six of the Palestinian children are alleged to have been committing um, stabbing attacks or some type of violence at the time they were killed. Um, so, you know, the, the situation is, is obviously... If, 
pretty dire um, and urgent for Palestinian children, particularly in East Jerusalem, but uh, it's really not confined to, to, to just Jerusalem. Um, we have kids that have been killed on the in Gaza on the border fence. So, you know, thinking about the, this recent sort of upsurge in violence and, and, and developments, um, it's much broader, and it actually is, is part of a trend that we've seen since the beginning of 2014, where Israeli forces have sort of used increasing lethal force, but also the use of excessive force against Palestinian uh, demonstrators, particularly children. So uh, in a lot of ways, what you see in the media and things is, is this is an isolated sort of up, you know, groundswell of, of, of uh, tensions, um, but really it's sort of... The, the, the inevitable outcome of policies that have been um, being implemented to varying degrees throughout the occupied Palestinian territory against Palestinians as part of the occupation. Um, so what we're seeing in Jerusalem, uh, more separation, communities being um, sort of barricaded in, checkpoints, um, all you know, impact <laughs> children specifically um, and have sort of potential long-term consequences and when you think of education, um, not only just the right to life, but the right to education and you know livelihoods, right? What's the future look for these these children? Uh, one of our main concerns as a child rights organization is that the Palestinian population is incredibly young. Um, nearly 50% of the population, uh, Palestinian population living in West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza is is under 18 years old. Um, so I think this is this is a key concern as we see really no political solution uh, in sight and, and no willingness to ease the occupation or end the occupation or address the, the justice and accountability issues um, that Palestinian children feel directly. And um, in the last few weeks, you and Defense for Children International Palestine have said that um, we're seeing Israel's implementation of a shoot-to-kill policy extrajudicial assassinations um, that are targeting children. Um, can you talk a little bit about about what that looks like and, and where international law comes into this equation, you know, as we see for the last 70 years that international law has not factored in and Israel enjoys impunity um, when it comes to this. So, um, yeah, t tell us about your work there. What we've seen increasingly since the beginning of 2014 is Israeli forces using uh, lethal force against demonstrators throughout the West Bank um, and more recently inside in in Jerusalem um, so it's sort it, it to really understand kind of what's developing it's important to look at the, the legal framework and the legal standards that apply so in the West Bank you have military law uh, the Israeli army and border police operate with a, a standard for live fire that is uh, justifies live fire and lethal force when they're confronted with a mortal or direct threat to life. Um, what we've seen recently in Jerusalem, which is is outside of the the Israeli military law framework, Israel considers Jerusalem part of of Israel as annexed the city of Jerusalem um, in a move that hasn't been recognized by the international community, but you have Israeli civilian law. So recently there was uh, moves by um, the Knesset and Israeli authorities to relax live fire regulations in Jerusalem, essentially to, to be able to combat and target stone-throwing Palestinian youth um, where, where clashes were, were developing. And that's obviously led to uh, increased fatalities. 
um, you know, combine the lack, or the relaxation of, of live fire guidelines, both in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem, with systemic impunity, uh, and it's really a recipe for for just increased killings, and that's what we're seeing. Um, there is no accountability in you know of the 16 cases um, that we've documented since 2014 of, of child fatalities uh, with live ammunition. There's only been one case where there's been uh, an indictment, and the indictment was in the case of Nadim Nawara, uh, Palestinian youth shot and killed on May 15, 2014. And even there, uh, the charge is for manslaughter. So it, it's it's not actually for an in- intentional killing, which uh, all of the evidence points to what was the case. Um, so soldiers can essentially do anything that they feel comfortable with personally because they know that there's no accountability. They're never going to be held accountable. Um, so what we're seeing now with, with the Palestinian children um, that are alleged to have carried out stabbing attacks is that the use of lethal force appears to be intentional. Um, It's an intentional lethal force used against these children, even though uh, some of the evidence that we've seen suggests that they were incapacitated or they could have been apprehended without the use of lethal force. Um, And and this is a real concern that there is being implemented a shoot-to-kill policy um, in practice because it's very hard to, to determine what the the situation was at the time the child was was shot. Um, Israeli forces and Israeli authorities are not turning over the bodies of, of children that have been killed um, after they've been alleged to to have carried out one of these attacks. So it's very difficult to even verify, um, you know, the injury sustained, the the, the cause of death, um, and, and sometimes even in fact if they are a child. Um, so there's there's many obstacles that. That exist in, in sort of verifying the circumstances to determine whether Israeli forces are operating in accordance with international law. Tell us a bit more about um, this policy now in effect of Israel not returning the bodies of children to their families and, and, and really what impact that has on family and what sort of message that sends to the families um, from Israel. Reports from last week um, showed that a, a proposal by the Israeli Ministry of Security, Minister of Security, was accepted by the, the Israeli Security Cabinet, um, basically approving plans to not return bodies um, of, of alleged attackers and to approve the burial of remains in, in distant cemeteries so that the families you know, aren't able to, to go to the, to the burial site. You know, on one level, this is purely punitive. Um, to sort of punish the immediate family, um, and then on the other level, it's it's it, it, at least according to the minister um, to prevent sort of gatherings around the funeral, um, anything that might be politicized or used by um, the mourners um, lead to clashes, or in the minister's words, to you know lead to incitement for future attacks. Uh, and really, I mean, it's very short-sighted, right? I think the, even if you accept that those are um, genuine, you know, goals in quote-unquote security interests, um, it's not addressing the long-term consequences or or root causes of violence. Um, it, it really could work to stoke additional violence. 
Um, so it, it's a concern. And, and when families aren't allowed to bury their children, um, it's obviously a huge emotional toll on that particular family. And those families are also threatened with uh, home demolitions as well, which is a, a form of collective punishment policies meted out by Israel. Yeah, exactly. And I think what you're seeing in, in particular communities throughout Jerusalem uh, is collective punishment, right? You have uh, roadblocks, closure policies being implemented um, in communities where uh, alleged attackers ha ha have come from. Um, so it's not being targeted on the individual who has allegedly committed a culpable criminal act. Uh, it's, it's taking an entire community, an entire family, um, in in punishing them for the act of an individual. And a, a child at that. Yeah. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Visit us online at electronicintifada.net or follow us on Twitter at Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. Intifada Electronic. Intifada Electronica. Electronic Intifada. We're speaking with Brad Parker, a lawyer with Defense for Children International Palestine here in Oakland. Um, Brad, can you remind us of the ways in which the occupation forces work in concert with armed settlers, especially in places like Hebron, uh, where recently and, and habitually children have been attacked and killed? Um, there's a long and terrifying history of these kinds of attacks in that city. Can you talk about um, the collaboration and collusion between Israeli settlers and soldiers? Particularly in Hebron, you have a very, what appears to be sort of coordinated effort between Israeli soldiers um, to protect settlers and then in turn um, not hold settlers accountable or intervene when settlers uh, carry out violence against Palestinian children or Palestinian residents generally. Um, throughout the West Bank, what we see is Palestinian children are, are targeted for arrest by the Israeli forces, um, subject to violence by both Israeli settlers and soldiers. In communities that are located near settlements, near military bases, um, near the separation wall, near roads used by Israeli soldiers and settlers, right? The, wherever the occupation has its infrastructure, these are where children are vulnerable to violence, to arrest, um, in, in sort of a number of violations. Um, we n really never, you know, extremely rarely see Israeli soldiers step in to um, prevent settlers from, from carrying out um, violence or, or attacks against Palestinians. Um, often, if you know, Palestinian youth are, are throwing stones um, or if settlers are present and settlers are throwing stones and Palestinian youth, uh, you know, respond and throw stones, uh, what you see is the Israeli soldiers sort of step in to protect the settlers from from the Palestinian population, the Palestinian youth in that particular community. Mm -hmm. um, that's the context. So aside from these, you know, acute, heightened incidents, as, as we've seen over the last three weeks, uh, Defense for Children International Palestine has also been at the forefront of providing advocacy um, and legal protection for children who are in the Israeli military court system, uh, children who have been detained, tortured, interrogated, and forced to sign confessions. Um, can you take us through a little bit of, of uh, DCI Palestine's work there and 
um, how that operates in terms of like trying to get some accountability. You mentioned that there was one indictment out of you know very out of a lot, but how how do you operate in the system that is so um, punitive and and so contradictory to international law, especially against children? We've represented Palestinian children charged in the Israeli military courts since 1991. We were founded as a legal aid organization uh, to do just that and provide that service. Um, so we have you know, decades of experience working in the military courts, uh, working to get children released from detention uh, as soon as possible. Um, it, it's a difficult context. We acknowledge that you know, the military courts aren't about justice. It's not about punishing um, or holding people accountable for individual criminal acts. Um, it's really a legal mechanism that's used to enforce and, and further the control aspects of, of the occupation. Um, so you have Palestinian children, usually from, from communities near settlements, uh, separation wall, um, near military bases, these are, these are the communities that are targeted. These are the communities that, where kids are arrested. It's not about guilt or innocence for us, right? Um, you throw a stone or you don't throw a stone, you're still entitled to, to specific protections under international law, particularly for, for children, um, where the, the principal standard for treatment, for uh, court hearings, for really for any aspect of a legal proceeding is the, what's in the best interest of the child. Uh, that consideration is very much not included in, in any of the determinations within the Israeli military court system. And so you have a system where children are systematically ill-treated, um, arrested from their homes in the middle of the night, uh, they're blindfolded, their hands are tied, they're thrown in a military jeep, um, transferred around the West Bank, eventually they appear in a, a police station in an Israeli settlement um, where they're questioned, they're denied access to counsel prior to or during interrogation, uh, their families aren't allowed to accompany them uh, during the interrogation, and, and when you have a system that isn't built around evidence, there's no independent oversight over arrests, um, there's no warrants issued in, in, in the majority of cases, you, you have a system that is ripe for abuse. Um, the interrogation is very much set up to coerce children into providing, uh, if not a confession or a signed statement, some type of incriminating information or statement that can then be used against them um, to, by the military prosecutor to file charges against them in the military courts. And, and that's exactly what we see, and that's the systematic process. You see uh, from the moment of arrest to interrogation, um, ill-treatment, physical violence, coercive environment, where they're manipulated and, and, and vulnerable. Um, they arrive to these interrogation centers and these police stations, you know, bound and blindfolded, beaten and, and often scared. And they're in that room alone. You can imagine the situation uh, and, and the things that are happening in their, in their mind. And, and they're often told that, you know, if you confess, just say you threw a stone and we'll let you go. We'll let you call your family. We'll, we'll call your father. Um, in reality, that doesn't happen. Right? Even if you do confess, you sign a statement, um, you're transferred off to a military prison, either uh, offer military prison or uh, a military prison inside Israel. So when we see these kids and we represent them in the military courts, uh, the cards are stacked against them. Um, we, we know it's not about justice. 
um, yet we operate as a child rights organization. It's very much about the best interests of that child, and we know uh, by providing specialized, child-focused legal aid, legal representation, we can get that child removed from that situation uh, faster than they would be without <laughs> our specialized expertise. Um, so it's not in the the grand scheme of, of thing of the violations that children face in the context that they're in the military courts and in detention. Um, it, it, there is no silver bullet, but if we can remove that child from that situation uh, as fast as possible, um, we can work then with the families and, and rehabilitation programs to to address the needs and the impact that that detention has had on that person. And finally, what kind of impact, psychological, social, um, does that kind of treatment against children have on that population? This is really the key question. Um, And, and, you know, for me personally, this is the hardest point because what you see is kids come out once they're released from detention, um, you know, you they withdraw. <laughs> they withdraw from society. Um, sometimes they drop out of school. Uh, they never want to be around soldiers. They don't want to be in a context where they could be arrested. They never want to be, in, you know, go through checkpoints. Sometimes they they don't want to walk to school alone. They will, won't leave the house without, uh, you know, their father or their uncle accompanying them. Um, it remains a present thing in their life and it shapes the way they live their life. We, we often, we don't talk about it much, but it, it, the after effects are, are potentially huge. Um, and, it, and it's not just this one moment of detention, you know, two, three months, 18 months, whatever the time period might be. That arrest, detention, it, it stays with you. Often kids, uh, they plead guilty. Um, Part of that plea agreement comes with a suspended sentence. So suspended sentence probationary period could be anywhere from two to five years. Uh, If they commit or are charged with an offense uh, in that period, they automatically get whatever the the suspended sentence would be. Um, So, you know, if you're a 15, 16-year-old kid and you get a two, three, four, five-year suspended sentence probationary period uh, it takes you well beyond your 18 year old 18th birthday um, you know in the US there's this idea that juvenile offenders once they turn 18 have the opportunity to have their records expunged uh, have the charge or, or the, the conviction hidden um, so that it doesn't impact their livelihood their future or their their opportunity um, for college whatever it might be in the West Bank this conviction stays with you. It impacts your ability to, to travel, um, freedom of movement, uh, a whole range of, of other issues that, that are very inherent pieces of the occupation, um, uh, which are you know, obviously have long-term consequences for the child, both uh, you know, in practice but also emotionally, psychologically. And finally, if people want to learn more about the work that you do and the work of the organization, tell us where we can find you online. So you can find us, uh, our website is www.dci-palestine.org. Um, we're on Facebook, backslash DCIPS, and Twitter, at DCI Palestine.
Brad Parker, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks for having me. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on iTunes, support the Electronic Intifada podcast by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>